Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be talking about the Book of Mormon. We are, we're going to be doing the Book of Mormon. And this uh, podcast is going to be about the title page to the Book of Mormon and the introduction. And I want to start off first reading uh, the first part of the introduction where it talks about it's an abridgment of the record of Nephi. And then skip down to the middle of the second paragraph there in the title page. In the purpose of the Book of Mormon, it says, is to show unto the remnant of the house of Israel a couple of things. Number one, what great things the Lord hath done for their fathers, that they may, too, know the covenants of the Lord, and that they're not cast off forever, and to the convincing of the Jew and the Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting himself unto all nations. And so there's a lot of purposes in there. We want to know the covenants. We want to know that we're not cast off, that the Lord's done some things for us and to know that Jesus is the Christ. But Bryce, what can you say about the idea that's portrayed in the Book of Mormon about Jesus manifesting himself to all nations? We almost always put a period there. So often as I hear the title page quoted, they say, you know, the Book of Mormon was written to convince Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, period. Or Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, period. And it certainly does do that. Uh, the the Book of Mormon will convince you that Jesus is the Messiah, but why would a Latter-day Saint who already knows Jesus is the Messiah read the Book of Mormon then? Notice it's not a period. It's a comma. One of the greatest contributions of the Book of Mormon isn't just to show that Jesus is the Christ, but to show what Jesus does. What is his purpose? What will he do in your life? And so we've been, we begin, let's begin as big and as wide and as broad as we possibly can. The Book of Mormon will show you that Jesus will manifest himself unto all nations. Every nation. So think Book of Mormon for a, a moment. Is there a nation in the Book of Mormon to which Jesus does not manifest himself? He manifests himself to every nation. The Jews are mentioned in the Book of Mormon. Does Jesus manifest himself to the Jews? Yep. Nephites? Yep. Lamanites? Yep. Mulekites? Yep. Does he manifest himself to the Jaredites? Yep. Now, if that's true, then Jesus is going to manifest himself to your nation, wherever you live. If you live in Colombia, if you live in Belize, if you live in Iraq, if you live in Russia or China... Jesus will manifest himself to your nation. He will manifest himself to every nation. That's the testimony of the Book of Mormon. But let's peel off a layer. I am not a nation. He might manifest himself to my nation, and I'm not there. My nation is a big piece, and it has a big, long history. So let's go back. Let's peel off one layer. What's smaller than a nation? Well, in the United States, we would say that a state, I live in the state of Utah, I'm in the nation of the United States, but I live in the state of Utah, or I live in the state of Arizona. But in the scriptures, we wouldn't use the title state, we would say something like a kindred, tongue, or a people. So turn with me to Alma chapter 26, and watch the Book of Mormon peel back that layer, and let's go to a smaller group. What is Jesus regarding every 
people. If he manifests himself to all nations, what does he do to smaller groups like peoples? The last verse of Alma chapter 26. Now, the setting here is significant. This is the Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni, or the conclusion of their mission. And they are rejoicing in what God did to a group of the Lamanites, not the whole nation. The whole nation was not converted. But what did God do to a group of the Lamanites? And he says in the very last verse, verse 37, And now, my brethren, we see that God is mindful of every people. Every people, whatsoever land they may be in, he numbereth his people, his bowels of mercy are over all the earth. Now, this is my joy and my thanksgiving. So, not only does he manifest himself unto every nation... He is mindful of every people, which means he is mindful of my people. He's mindful of my family. He's mindful of my group. He's mindful of the people with whom I associate. No matter where you live on this earth, he is mindful of your people. But again, I'm not a people. I'm a person. I'm one individual. So let's peel back one layer And let's get to that individual layer. So now let's go to Mosiah chapter 27, which again, the setting is very significant. Because this is one, I know it's five, but it's, it's one real, it's the story of one individual, Alma, a rebellious young man who is going about trying to destroy the church. And then God kind of comes and strikes him down. He goes into a little bit of a trance a little bit, and then he wakes up and then he says, In verse 30, which I would suggest, brothers and sisters, might very well be one of the central themes of the whole Book of Mormon. Here is the message of the Book of Mormon in one verse. Alma stands up and says, Hey, I rejected my Redeemer and I denied that which had been spoken by our fathers, but now that they may foresee that he will come and that he remembereth every creature of his creating. And then he ties us back to that first one. He will make himself manifest unto all. The testimony of the Book of Mormon at its very root is that God remembers every creature of his creating and will manifest himself to every single individual. God remembers you. If he remembered Alma, if he remembered Alma's dad, If he remembered Amulek, or Lamoni, or Lamoni's dad, the whole Book of Mormon seems to be the story of people who God could easily have justified forgetting, who at one point either fought against him or didn't care about him. Amulek will say, I always knew, yet I would not know. And yet God remembered He will manifest himself to you. He remembers you. Now, let's peel back one more layer. Let's go smaller than the individual. What's smaller than a person? A little person. A little person. A child. A hobbit. (laughs) Go to 3 Nephi chapter 17. What does Jesus do to each and every child? 3 Nephi chapter 17, verse 21. He takes each child one by one and... He blesses them, and he prays for them. He blessed each one. And I just, with all my soul, I know he didn't say the same thing to each child. 
He had an individual message. He had an individual blessing. So let me just emphasize that. Jesus has a blessing for you. Jesus prays to the Father that his blessing for you will be granted. I like that verse where it says that he took them one by one. One by one. If you go to the temple and you do work for the dead and you go through all the ordinances, brothers and sisters, ask yourself, how many times did the name of that person come up? And what does that say about God? One by one. So Jesus manifests himself unto every nation, is mindful of every people, remembers every creature of his creator creating, and blesses and prays for each one, including the children. And the Book of Mormon stands as a witness. It starts when Jesus remembers Lehi. He remembers Nephi. He even remembers Zoram. He remembers Laman and Lemuel. He remembers everyone. He remembers every creature of his creating. And that seems to be one of the great messages. As you read the Book of Mormon, watch for that theme. Not just that Jesus is the Christ, but what Jesus does. He manifests himself to every nation, is mindful of every people, remembers every creature of his creating, blesses and prays for each one of us, including the small little children. It's like a golden thread that's woven throughout the text. Of course, the authors want us to know that it's only in and through Christ that we're saved, but then they also reveal his character. And I like that. I mean, if you only had 10 minutes to teach the Book of Mormon, that's a good 10 minutes of, hey, this is who he is, and this is what he's doing in the text. And so I love that. I love that idea of he will make himself manifest. And if you also think about it, brothers and sisters, the Book of Mormon is preparing us for the temple. And the temple is where Jesus makes himself manifest in the Book of Mormon. And if you read the Doctrine and Covenants, it's happening there. There's always this continual invitation come to come into my presence. And we'll see this symbolically, of course, when we get to the tree of life. And if you listen to the Revelation podcast, we saw that all through the text of the book of Revelation. So it's this invitation to come. Which is interesting because if you do go into the temple, what is he holding up in his hand repeatedly throughout that whole experience? He's holding up the scriptures to even more fully come unto him. So it's good we're reading the Book of Mormon. This is really good. There's a lot of stuff in the lesson manual. It talks about, you know, I can be a witness of the Book of Mormon, or even the coming forth of it was a miracle. How was it translated? Um, Clearly, our audience is going to be a mixed bag. We're going to have some of you that have been members your whole life or, you know, third and fourth generation members of the church, and some of you are brand new. Um, I'm going to go ahead and just talk a little bit about method of translation. And I've done some work on the history of this, looking through the primary sources, and so a lot of this, I've done my best to cite primary sources on the method of translation because our enemies do a lot to make a, a, a great deal of a, about nothing. And here's why. We can't attack the text of the Book of Mormon. That, that's impenetrable, but we'll attack the, the method of translation. So let's talk about uh, what the enemies say, and, and we'll look at this. So first, the enemies say Joseph Smith looked in a hat to translate the Book of Mormon. Now, in the lesson material... Under how was the Book of Mormon translated, if you click on Book of Mormon translation under gospel topics and the gospel topics essays, it will talk about this. It will talk about that Joseph Smith did do this. What I wanted to do is just put this in context of history. And so the first thing I'm going to do is cover a timeline of the translation. And if, and if you're um, new to the church, this is a really good material. And if you're old hat, then this just may be a review. 
here's here's kind of the timeline. And this is pretty much something that all people agree on. Even yeah. apostates yes. can't argue that this is the timeline. Yeah, the enemies they can't yeah. claim that. Oh, all of this is made up. That yeah. this is this is as established historical fact that they began when Oliver shows up. And, and so let's be clear. This is this is kind of ground zero for everyone. We yeah. all accept this timeline. Good, good. Yeah, that's that's really important. So. Whether you're an enemy of the church or not, uh, it's reported that September 21st in the fall festival period, 1823, Joseph Smith's 17, and he's told, hey, you're going to get the, these plates, this record. He doesn't receive it until 1827 on September 22nd. Which means he's 21 years old. He's a young man. He's married. Uh, this is Mike Day Midrash. I think Joseph's marriage is integral to this process. Uh, Joseph doesn't say it. Uh, this is just my reading of Judaism and in ancient texts, there was this notion in antiquity that a man was not authorized to be an official like spokesman of the Torah to speak and to pontificate on these things until he was married. And I could be dead wrong, but Joseph is married by September 22nd, 1827, and he receives the plate. From October to December of 1827, he moves due to persecution. He moves to a place called Harmony, Pennsylvania with his wife. Where Em is from. Yep. And near her family. 100 miles away from his hometown, and Martin Harris gives him $50 to kind of work on the translation. So from January to February in 1828, Emma scribes and he translates. And then from February to March, Martin Harris visits Charles Anthon in New York City. Now that's significant. Charles Anthon is an expert on languages. Martin Harris brings him a portion of the text that was written on the plates, and Charles Anthon uh, validates it and says, this is ancient stuff. Once Martin knows this, he is set to mortgage his farm to make it so the publication of the Book of Mormon can come forth. I'm skipping a lot of history. There's a lot going on with Charles Anthon, but just know that after whatever it was that Charles Anthon told Martin Harris, historically, we know Martin Harris is on board. He's ready to help in any way he can. So he believes Joseph, and on April 12th of 1828, he scribes for Joseph. In June of 1828, so it's been a couple months, there's 116 pages that's produced. And that text, Martin says, he wants to take it and show it to his family. That's where we're going to get section 5 and section 10 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Historically... 3 and 10. Yeah, thank you, 3 and 10. So just know that for now, um, and the narrative goes like this, Martin takes the 116 pages, we don't know where it goes, it's gone, and Joseph... Um, loses the ability to translate. What I mean by that is um, June 14th, the the text is taken. June 15th, um, Alvin Smith is born to Emma and Joseph, and Alvin, their son, dies that day. So talk about a depressing time period. In July, Joseph heads to Palmyra to talk to Martin, and Martin tells him, I've lost the manuscript. And Joseph thinks all is lost. So from July to September of that year, uh, Joseph doesn't have the gift of translation. Moroni takes the plates. And as uh, Bryce talked about, Section 3 of the Doctrine and Covenants is received after some repentance and humbling himself. In September of that year, he gets the plates. He translates a little bit in the winter from February to March of 1829, and he's told to wait. On April 5th, 1829, Oliver Cowdery, who's a school teacher, shows up in Harmony, Pennsylvania, and he, he scribes for Joseph. So the bulk of the Book of Mormon is translated from April to June. Starting on April 7th is when translation resumes in full force, and it's completely translated by June 30th. So if you do the math, by my math, you've got April, May, and June. 
three months to translate the entire text. What historians would say is about eight pages a day. Now, I've done some translation, and I think, Bryce, you've done some too. You know languages. Talk to me about eight pages a day. There's no way. That is like full speed ahead. That is like going as fast as a translator could possibly go. Yeah. I think one page is a day. Yeah. I think one is really ambitious. I I don't. And so this is, this is my contention. And like I said, I wasn't there, but we're doing the podcast and I'm just going to tell you what I think. Heaven's doing this. There's help from heaven. And from the accounts we read, Joseph is given the words. Uh, However you want to view that. um, I think that's what's going on. So when we talk about method of translation, here's the big picture. Prior to the loss of the 116 pages, Joseph is using the two small stones in silver bows. He's going to call that the Yerman Thummim. He also has a, a rock, a stone that's like chocolate colored. He sometimes calls that the Yerman Thummim. And so that's why historically it can get kind of confusing. And so in the show notes, I'll have a couple of different pages. One is called Joseph Smith translated the plates with the Yerman Thummim. And what I give you are firsthand historical accounts of how he talked about translating it with the Yerman Thummim, not just by Joseph but by others, Oliver Cowdery, Martin Harris, and David Whitmer. Those are probably the three closest, that and Emma, to the translation process. They testify that before the loss of the 116 pages, Joseph is using that as the tool or the method. After the loss of the 116 pages, uh, the accounts that I have that I've gathered in my studies, the firsthand accounts and witnesses say that Joseph Smith used the seer stone. And this is where history can be kind of confusing. When the enemies of the church say Joseph looked in a hat and he translated the whole Book of Mormon with a seer stone, um, as someone who likes to study history, I say, well, it's really not that cut and dry. After the loss of the plates, and then when he gets them back, that's probably a fair assessment. Prior to that, he did use the Yermum Thummim. Now, in the translation process, how much of this was, was he part of this process? I think Joseph's playing a role in this process as well, but it's complicated. But just know, like anything, history is messy. I like to say that a lot. And this is happening. And so is Joseph translating by the Yerman Thummim? My first question is, well, what do you mean by Yerman Thummim? Stone and a hat? I would say yes, after the 116 pages are lost. But before, he's using the tool that the Lord gave him. And so that's a little bit on translation. Well, clearly Joseph plays a role, role here because when Oliver tries to do it, it he fails. So you, it's not interchangeable. You, it, 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 Joseph does do something. And what's significant is all of these comments about how the book was translated are coming to us from people who were there but aren't necessarily putting their head in the hat. The only person who really knows how the book was translated Never said anything. The only thing Joseph ever said was what he wrote in the title page of the original version of the Book of Mormon, which was simply, I translated this by the gift and power of God. That's the only firsthand account from Joseph. Everything else is coming to us from another account. David Whitmer, Emma, Oliver, people who were there but weren't necessarily doing the translation. On one occasion in 1831... Um, they were at a kind of a conference and they said they, Hiram suggested that maybe Joseph should tell the brethren how the Book of Mormon was translated. Um, and Joseph stood up and said the following, that it was not intended to tell the world all the particulars of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. 
and also said that it was not expedient for him to relate these things. I don't think that he's hiding anything or that he can't tell us. I just don't think we would fully understand the whole process. And I would remind everyone, I would remind believer and non-believer, that long ago God said that this book would be a marvelous work and a wonder. It came forth, not in a logical understandable process that we can fully explain and articulate. It was a marvelous work and a wonder. And of that, I testify, however it came forth, it was done by a man who was 23 years old. And the one thing that everyone acknowledges is that the dictation period took around 60 to 70 days and that he didn't use any outside material It was done in the presence of multiple witnesses and that not once did Joseph ever go back and read what was what he had said previously in order to correct something that he was saying now. Now, you contrast that with someone like J.R.R. Tolkien, who had decades to write the Lord of the Rings trilogy, who was an English professor who had a Ph.D., who made multiple revisions. Joseph Smith, 23 years old without an education, produces a nearly 600-page book in a dictation period that lasts 60 days. He doesn't use any outside material, and he doesn't go back and correct any of the material. He doesn't go back and change, well, what did I say 200 pages ago? And yet there is in this book an incredible consistency and connection. Um, there is just no possible way that Joseph Smith is doing this on his own. He's 23 years old. I have a master's degree. I am 50 years old, and I could not produce this book with a thousand drafts in probably a hundred years. That is an astounding fact that has to be considered. And it You have to account for that. You cannot brush off the translation period. You can criticize it. You can say, well, it seems funny that he put a head in his head in a hat. But you cannot brush this off. How a 23-year-old produced a 600-page book in a dictation period of 60-plus days without making major revisions? That actually makes it harder if my head's in a hat trying to write something. Yeah. (laughs) I just think you're just – you just made it more difficult. The degree of difficulty just shifted, so. Yeah. Yeah. So either he's making this book up on the fly, a 600-page book that he's making up on the fly without making any revisions, or he's previously written it and he has to memorize eight pages and stick his head in a hat every day and dictate what he's memorized, or he's doing exactly what he claims to be doing, and it's coming to him through a divine process that we may not fully understand, and it's done by the gift and power of God. Of those three, I'll bet my life on the last one. I remember as a young man having an experience reading the Book of Mormon and being filled with light, and it's very difficult for me to describe, but I know that there is divinity in it. What's interesting to me is how often that experience is repeatable as I've read the text in my life, how it's filled my life with light, and it's manifest in all kinds of different ways, but I just want to bear witness that as I read these words, they come from heaven. 
after the introduction talks about the translation process. And again, the only thing the introduction says is that Joseph translated them by the gift and power of God. The very next paragraph. So this, is the, this is the introduction, one, two, three, four, five, sixth paragraph okay. of the introduction. Joseph Smith said, quote, I told the brethren that the Book of Mormon was the most correct of any book on earth and the keystone of our religion and that a man would get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. Most correct book on earth, get closer to God by reading it than any other book. And then he says it's the keystone of our religion. How is the Book of Mormon the keystone of our religion? President Benson said three ways. Number one, it's the keystone of our testimony of Christ. And I would give everyone an assignment. Write down everything you know about Christ. And then cross out everything that is only taught in the Book of Mormon, not in the Bible. And you are going to be shocked at how much you believe in Christ that comes through the Book of Mormon. For example, Alma chapter 7 He suffered pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind. That is a Book of Mormon doctrine, not so much a Bible doctrine. Most people who have only the Bible think the atonement occurred on the cross, that his suffering was on the cross. It is a Book of Mormon doctrine to help us understand that his suffering occurred in the garden and what he did in the garden. There's a lot in the Bible But I don't think Latter-day Saints fully appreciate all that we know of Jesus that came through the Book of Mormon. So as you study the Book of Mormon this year, pay attention to unique doctrines of Christ that come to us through the pages of the Book of Mormon. And what you would have to give up if you rejected the Book of Mormon. You have to give up Jesus as taught in the Book of Mormon. The second thing President Benson mentions about uh, being a cornerstone is it's the cornerstone of our doctrine. Think, make a list of doctrines that are taught primarily in the Book of Mormon. I'll give you one major doctrine that you'll find almost absent in the Bible, and that is the doctrine of the fall. The Bible does not teach the doctrine of the fall, but the Book of Mormon very clearly teaches the need for and the purpose of the fall and how the atonement balances the fall. There are so many doctrines that come to us by way of the Book of Mormon. It's the keystone of our doctrine. But then the third thing is, it's the keystone of our testimony. And President Benson goes on to say, do you understand the role the book plays in our testimony? Because the reality is, if the Book of Mormon is true, then Joseph Smith was a prophet. It proves the validity and the calling of the prophet Joseph Smith. And if Joseph Smith was a prophet, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is true. And if the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is true, then its doctrines and practices and current leaders are also divinely inspired by God. And if the book is true, then Jesus is the Christ. So, for example, that's how you could solve almost every problem. Let's suppose there's a Christian group out there that believes that the Sabbath day is Saturday. And for 4,000 years, the Sabbath day was Saturday. But we believe that when the resurrection occurred on Sunday, that the Sabbath day switched and that all of Christianity then switched the Sabbath day to Sunday. But how would you then prove to anyone who believed a Christian denomination that believed that the Sabbath day was Saturday? There's very little in the Bible to prove it. So what would you do? Well, is the Book of Mormon true? If the Book of Mormon's true, then Joseph Smith was a prophet. 
And if Joseph Smith was a prophet, then section 59 is true and inspired, in which the Lord calls Sunday the Sabbath day. So the one way, not that we're after proving, but if you want to establish the truth of any Latter-day Saint doctrine or practice or leader or key, you just simply have to read the Book of Mormon and come to a knowledge that the Book of Mormon is true. If the Book of Mormon is true, then there was a restoration. And if there was a restoration, that means there was an apostasy. And if there was an apostasy, it means the authority was lost on earth. It is the keystone of our testimony. And we need to understand that it all comes down to, is the Book of Mormon true? So people can criticize the church all they want. And apostates often criticize our doctrine, which is foolish. If you want to destroy the church, all you have to do is prove that the Book of Mormon is false. But they would easier, that it's easier to attack doctrine than attack the Book of Mormon because the Book of Mormon is, it's nearly impossible to prove that it's false. You'd have to prove that Joseph Smith wrote it and there is so much evidence that he didn't write it. And so anytime anyone attacks a doctrine, it really boils down to, is the Book of Mormon true? Because if the Book of Mormon's true, then the doctrine the Book of Mormon establishes or the doctrine established by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which was established by Joseph, who translated the Book of Mormon, is true as well. It is the keystone of our testimony. And we need to take advantage of that and understand the position that we're in. All right, now that leads us to witnesses, Mike. So why don't you take the witnesses? So historically, not everybody saw it the way Bryce sees it. For example, there are people that believe the Book of Mormon to be true, but maybe they struggle with the doctrine or maybe a practice. We certainly know in 1838, there were a bunch of members that they loved the Book of Mormon, but they didn't like what was happening in the church and they left. And so one of those was a guy by the name of David Whitmer. In fact, of the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon, and so, and you can read their testimonies. There's three of them. There's Martin Harris, David Whitmer, and Oliver Cattery. I find it fascinating that all three in the 1838 apostasy left the church. Now, if you think about this from a logical standpoint, let's just say that these three witnesses who said they saw an angel and they saw the plates, uh, they and Joseph, it was just all made up. And it was kind of this big, uh, you know, deception then now's your chance to come out and say, hey, Joseph was just making it up. We see whistleblowers all the time. Yeah. Usually when someone leaves an organization, they blow the whistle on that organization. Yeah. It happens all the time. Yeah, and and they didn't. They didn't uh, recant their testimony. And In the, fact, to the opposite, yeah. they defy, I mean, they adamantly hold to their testimony. Even, even David Whitmer, who never came back, he called 22 witnesses towards the end of his life to vouch for his character. He swore an oath to them that he saw what he saw, that he is, in fact, telling the truth. Yeah, so in 1888, he bore witness of this. He was the most interviewed witness to the text of the Book of Mormon, and he died on January 25th, 1888, when he was 84. So if you think about it, the Book of Mormon comes forth in 1829, published to the world 1830. So it's almost 60 years after the time when he witnessed the plates. And on Sunday evening, January 22nd, at half past five, he called his family together and he had someone there to, to profess that he was of sound mind. He said, Dr. Buchanan, I want you to say whether or not I am in the right mind before I give my last testimony. And the doctor said, yes, you're in your right mind, for I have had a conversation with you. Then David Whitmer said the following, Now you must all be faithful in Christ. I want to say to you all that the Bible and the record of the Nephites are true. 
So you can say that you've heard me bear my testimony on my deathbed. And so that's it. That was his testimony. He bore witness that the record of the Nephites or the Book of Mormon was true as well as the Bible. And what I find fascinating about this, David Whitmer, he left the church, but he never came back. Two of the other three witnesses are Oliver Cowdery and Martin Harris. Both of them left the church, but later came back and, and died in full fellowship in the church. History is messy. And everybody has reasons for why they struggle in faith and, and especially working with a young organization and young prophets and, and members. And we're not going to get into the weeds on that right now, but just know that these three witnesses that saw the record and heard the angel, uh, they died bearing witness that it was true. And if anyone had a bone to pick or to say, hey, I didn't see this, it would be one of those three men. But I, ha- I have a spiritual witness of it, of the, of the Book of Mormon. For me, this is a matter of faith. But I really do appreciate that the Lord understands that we live in a secular environment where it seems like evidence is king. Now, as much as the Lord loves evidence and as much as he wants us to go to the light, he's never going to intellectually compel us to believe. He's not going to put all the evidence on one side and say, well, you have to believe. And I don't believe in that kind of God. I don't think you do either. In other words, the Lord's going to give us enough evidence But really, the evidence is the spirit that's manifest as we read the text and as we try to apply the principles. We've covered just a little bit in this podcast, but I want to just reiterate what Bryce said about the nature of who God is, is manifest throughout the pages of the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith's day, there was a common notion in 19th century America that there were those that were elect that God has chosen and they're going to be saved, and there's those that God has elected or chosen to be damned, and there's nothing we can do about this. And that just violated every piece of Joseph Smith's soul. He was just like, that's just wrong. And Brigham Young later said something to the effect of, if you take away my agency, you take away my identity. Agency is who I am. We are agents. And that's something that really resonates with the Book of Mormon, this idea that we have agency, and that what we do in effect, causes salvation or can cause us to lose the light. In other words, we play a role in our salvation. And with the Bible as a standalone text, there are a lot of Christians that don't see that. And that comes out of 5th century Augustinian theology, where he kind of talked about this notion of predestination and God's chosen who will be saved. But the Book of Mormon clearly goes and it cuts against that grain, that what we do matters. And I just want to bear testimony to that too, that your decisions and your actions do matter. And I think the Book of Mormon really hits home with that, as we'll see as we go through the text. So that's a little bit on the witnesses, a little bit on translation. If you read the notes, you can go and see the firsthand accounts of this. But just know that Bryce and I have done the work on this, on the history, and gathering up some of the testimony of the witnesses. Just one more thing, and I think this week on the introduction pages and the witness statements needs to end with you. The whole idea is, okay, I see that Joseph had witnesses of the plates and that saw the angel, and then he had eight more witnesses of the plates. But you need to become a witness. The whole point of this introduction, I think, is to say, will you be a witness of the Book of Mormon? And so let me give you a couple thoughts of fuel for your own witness. We're going to get to Alma chapter 32, where Alma invites us to make an experiment with the word. And that experiment is to try it, give place. And those of you who have given place to the Book of Mormon, Alma says, here's how you'll know if the seed is a good seed. 
I'm in Alma 32, verse 28. If you plant it, if you will take time to give place, one or more of of four things are going to happen. If it's a good seed, number one, it will swell within your breasts. You'll feel a swelling. And I know a lot of critics are critical of that, so let's add the other three. If the Book of Mormon is true, it will enlarge your soul. It will make your soul bigger. You will grow. In other words, try the book and see if it makes you a better person. That to me, brothers and sisters, is the greatest evidence of the book. Not so much a feeling that I get when I read it, but the change that comes over me and the people I watch read the book. That book changes lives. Read it and watch how it changes your life. I have had a front row seat of Latter-day Saint youth who begin to fall in love and read that book. And I have watched for 27 years the changes that that book causes. If the book has changed you, if it's enlarged your soul, don't you have to conclude that the seed is a good seed? It's not a dud. Number three from Alma, it will enlighten your understanding. Read the book and see if it just makes sense. See if it just connects dots in a way that no other book will connect. And that's what I love about the Book of Mormon. It just makes sense. And the last one Alma mentions, if the book is true, it will be delicious. And you'll want to come back to it again and again and again. Of that, I testify. If you have tried the book and if it swelled within your breast, if it enlarged your soul and made you a better person, if it made sense and enlightened your understanding, and if it became delicious unto you, God now calls on us to witness of the book for ourselves. Now, let me ask you, if 10 people see a crime and not one of them are willing to say what they saw, how many witnesses are there? 10 or none? Is seeing the crime making you a witness? I would suggest no. That crime has zero witnesses. Ten people saw the crime, but not one person was willing to say what happened. We become a witness when we are willing to stand up and say, I know this seed is a good seed. And so let me be very clear where Bryce Dunford stands. This is a good seed. I know it. It has made me a better person. It has enlightened my understanding. It has become so delicious to me. And I invite you to be a witness of it.